The book of Revelation, we have the introduction to it in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And I think it's important for us just to remember, first of all, how the Bible comes to us. This notion of where we get the Word of God from. The Word of God comes to us from God. Uh, we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all of Scripture is God-breathed. Uh, it is His communication to us. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we read there that uh, no prophecy comes to us by the word of man. Uh, is no, produced, or no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to the book of Revelation, we're reminded that this book is a gift of God to us. God spoke to uh, various uh, people, and it has come down through us. And so you see that process very clearly there, that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. Gave to who? Gave to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus then uh, gave it to uh, angels, uh, sent it um, to us through angels, to John, and then John communicated it to the rest of us. So it has a clear process on how the book has come to us. And I just want that to be fixed in your minds this morning, that this is not some book of man that we've just made up and thrown together over the course of a few thousand years, that this book comes to us because God wanted us to know these things. And I think it's very important that you see there that, as it says in verse 1, that he gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. I think that is, I underline words, and underlining the word must is a helpful one if you do that, simply because this is not um, something that might take place. This is not something that should take place. This is not something that we hope will take place. This is the word of God, and God knows the beginning and the end and everything in between. And so these are things which must shortly take place. There is no doubt that these things will unfold in the course of the history or in these last days. I think the second thing that I want to draw to your attention is verse 3, where it says there in verse 3 that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep or to hold in their heart what is written in it for the time is near. There's another reference to time for the time is near. I was mulling over these verses though as I was thinking of Pastor Barry explaining to us about the situation in this town in, in Ethiopia. They don't have the privilege of this blessing. Because these words are not in their language yet. They are not something that can be read. They are not something that can be heard. What a gift that you and I have. To have the word of God in an articulate form. In a way that we can both read it. Understand it. Hear it. And apply it in our lives. The blessing that comes to us is not unlike the blessings that come to us in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the way of the wicked, but walks in the law of the Lord. It's the same Greek word that's used there. Blessed is the one in Psalm 119 who keeps the word of God in his life. There's a, it's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. It's a word that means all the happiness of or all the joy of. There's this reality that as we come to the word of God in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we read it, and we hear it read, and we obey it, there's this blessing that comes to us and we receive. We find this illustrated, this notion of hearing it and of obeying it in the letter, uh, the, the, the seven um, letters uh, that are within the book of Revelation to the churches that are listed there. At the end of each one of those references to the churches, it says there, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
These are words that are meant to be heard. And behind that, let him who has a hear listen, is a reference to the fact there are things that we ought to take to heart. And so you read those uh, letters to those seven churches and you find there that in each one of them there are admonitions. Be faithful. Repent. Do the things that you used to do. Don't tolerate this. Don't tolerate that. Stand firm in the midst of persecution. And so there are things in the book of Revelation that we are meant to take to heart. And so this is a word of God that comes to us through this process. And it's a word that is meant to be read and heard and obeyed in our hearts and in our lives. I was thinking this past week um, of a conversation that I had with one of our growth group leaders. And I just asked him how the group was, group, group was doing and what was their best, most memorable uh, growth group of the season. And he says, well, actually, it was the one where there was no sermon notes. And after I picked myself off the ground and um, picked him up off of the ground, uh, I said, well, explain it to me. And it was the week of Chris or Easter where we don't uh, do sermon notes, and they wanted to meet anyhow. And so what he did is he sent out an email to his group with these instructions. You've been ordered by the authorities that due to an emergency situation, you must vacate your house within the next five minutes. You might not return for some time, so you grab a few things that you, of importance as you are literally running out of the door. You look and you see your Bible on the table and you grab for it and you keep running. When you're outside and into your car, you realize that all you have done is grab one page out of your Bible. And so the question that he posed to his group for the discussion was, then what page would you like it to be and why? Now, I don't want you to get hung up that thinking about that for the rest of the morning service. I think, well, what one would I choose? But it illustrates to me, I think, the centrality of one of the messages in this book that is for you and I to hear. And that is simply that this is a book about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. I, I sometimes am dismayed when I have conversations about the book of Revelation that they seem to go everywhere but to Jesus Christ. And I want us to fix in our hearts and minds that first and foremost, this book is a book about Jesus Christ. And it's a book about the gospel that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And it's a book about the gospel that means the restoration of all things. I was reading in one of the commentaries, which I will refer to a great deal, and it's by Daryl Johnson, and he writes this at the very beginning. He says, if it ever became illegal in my part of the world, as it actually is in other places at this very moment, to own a complete copy of the Bible... And if the authorities, as an act of mercy, allowed me to possess just one book of the Bible for personal use, I would, without hesitation, keep the last. I would keep the book of Revelation. Why? Because no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerfully as the last book does. No other book of the Bible, in the face of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way the last book does. More particularly, in no other book of the Bible do we see Jesus as clearly and compellingly as we do in the last book. Yet I am convinced that no other book helps us see Jesus as he is right now, as clearly and compellingly as the last book John wrote. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to the movement of history the way the last book does. No other book helps us see Jesus relative to the powers at work in our time the way the last book does. No other book helps us see him in a way that overcomes our fears and frees us for radical, radical faith. And no other book in all 
human literature crystallizes what it means to belong to and follow Jesus in the world. Doesn't that just want to make you go out and buy that commentary? But that is, I think, a crucial understanding about the book of Revelation. And if we miss that, we have missed the central theme that runs through this book of the Bible. I think it needs to be emphasized because we so quickly jump past the first five chapters of Revelation to get to chapter 6 and what comes to see, well, what's God doing in the world? What does this beast mean? What does that beast mean? What does this plague refer to? And we forget that the book is not about those plagues. It's not a map to the future, primarily. It's first and foremost the revelation of Jesus Christ about Jesus and about the gospel that comes to us through Jesus Christ. We need to stop and absorb this and think this through. And you need to think it through as you go back and I hope over the next weeks reread this book. Let the truth sink in. And as you do, it will significantly shape the way that you look at the last book of the Bible. It will shape the way that you come to understand it. And as you come to read it, you can underline the first five or six words of your Bible again. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Revelation, or uh, apocalypse, um, uh, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's a fitting word that's used here. The word revelation is not some spooky word. Apocalyptic literature is not something that should scare us away. Rather, the word revelation or apocalypse is used uh, of the lifting up of a cover off a box to expose what's inside the box. It's a word that is used to describe the pulling back of a curtain in a theater. As you pull back the curtain, you reveal the stage in which the play is going to open or to, uh, to reveal. It means to open up. And so the revelation then of Jesus Christ, as we keep this in our mind, that title in our mind simply is the lifting up of the cover or the pulling back of the curtain or, to, or, or, or the, the opening up of or the breaking through of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. It's, it's this revelation, this opening up of Jesus Christ to us. I want us to understand as we go through this book, and this is the perspective that both Pastor Barry and I will take as we go through this book, is that this book is a pastoral book. This book is meant for the people of God. It's meant to encourage them. It's meant to strengthen them in the face of tribulation. The book was first written to several churches that were scattered across Asia. That's its historical setting, that this book was given from God to Christ, through the angels, through John, to the saints who were in those seven churches listed in Asia. And we'll have a little bit more to say about those seven churches in a moment. But you say, well, how did they hear the book? How did the words of this book impact them? What was its focus towards them? Well, this book, this revelation, this prophecy, this circular letter was a call to perseverance for them. It was a call to radical discipleship. It was a call to all-out courageous loyalty to the Lamb in a world that was feverishly given over to worshiping the beast. That's what this book was meant to do in its first uh, application was to encourage the church to hang in there, to remind the church that Christ would hold them fast. And that has been the way that the church throughout the last few thousand of years primarily has understood this book. 
It is a book primarily to help the people of God walk in the world in which we live. And so our approach will try and be to give a pastoral help to that. It's a book that invites you and I, as I've said, to live in the same kind of world that's dominated by beast worship. And as we live in that world, to keep our focus on Jesus Christ. I give you just a couple of examples to that, and I hope I don't lose my way as we do this, but I want to illustrate that to you simply by by point of reference from verses 1, chapter 12 to 20. What is the picture that we get there? Chris read it. It's the picture of the risen and exalted Christ. This was an Easter message of mine a number of years ago. Christ is not in the grave. Christ is not just floating around somewhere. This is a picture of the risen Christ. He is alive. And he is powerful. And he is mighty. And he is here on earth walking in our midst. That's what Revelation 1.20 wants us to understand. That the risen Lord, the living Lord, the resurrected Christ is right now in our midst. And this is what the book of Revelation wants us to do. It wants us to peel back the thin veil that that separates material reality from spiritual reality. And it wants us to see Jesus as he really is today. The presence of the risen and glorified Christ is one of the great unseen realities of the present. Right here, right now, just behind a very thin veil, he stands alive with power to help us and encourage us and assist us as a church because he says the gates of hell will not prevail against me. And so that's one of the images of Christ that we have in this book, the image of the risen and exalted Christ. And we jump ahead to chapters 2 to 3. And those chapters are, the, this one whole book was written to all of those seven churches. And those seven churches are, the, the numbers are so important in Revelation. And we'll take time, I hope, to unpack these numbers to you. But seven is a critical number. Seven is a number of wholeness. It's a number of completeness. It's a number of perfection. And so while, these letter, while this letter of Revelation was sent to each one of those seven churches, those seven churches actually represents the whole church throughout all of history. And what is applied to them also is applied to us. And the letter that was sent to those specific churches is also meant for us today. And what's the gist of the, me- of the message? Christ stands in our midst. Christ knows where we live. Christ knows what we face. Christ knows what we deal with. Christ knows what we need. He's not just alive up in heaven, ruling at the right hand of the Father. He is right now here in our midst, walking amongst us. This is a vision of revelation that we need to grasp and we need to understand. It's a revelation of the exalted Christ, but the exalted Christ who is now right here amongst us. And so as we consider that, we need to understand that the presence of the risen and the glorified Jesus Christ is the great unseen reality of the present. And right here, right now, just behind a very thin veil, we know that he is standing in our midst and he's saying, stop being afraid. I am alive. Look at me. I hold the keys to death and Hades. It's an incredible encouragement meant for you and I as God's people who stand on the word of God and who stand on the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
And then we get a final picture of Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 5. And there we get a picture of the risen, exalted Jesus Christ in heaven. We see him in earth in chapter 1. We see him in heaven in chapter 5 as he's at the right hand of the Father. And what's going on in, 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 in this vision of chapter 5, which is uh, the same vision as chapter 4. The throne is central. And what's happening? There's this throne, and on the throne is one sitting. And in the hand of one sitting is a scroll. And all the universe is weeping because nobody is able to take the scroll and open it up. And what is the scroll that's in the hand of uh, God who's on the throne? It's the scroll that's got the seven seals on it that's got writing on the inside and out. It's the scroll that represents the whole history of the world, the plan of redemption, the plan of restoration, God's will for this whole world. And it's in that letter and they're weeping because nobody, it seems, can open it. And what happens? Jesus Christ, the lion, the lamb that was slain, walks and takes the scroll from the king and begins to break open the seals. He is the powerful one. He is the one that can do it because of his death and his resurrection. And so we see again in this picture of, uh, of Revelation already, and in these first chapters, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about what he did. It's about what he's doing. It's about what he will do. It's about how he's right here, right now in our midst. And you come to Revelation chapter 5, and it's this extraordinary uh, uh, a chapter of images, and images of a, th a throne and an occupied throne, an image of a scroll that is finally taken by Christ and opened, an image of a lamb who was slain and is now standing in the midst. And what happens? All of heaven erupts in worship because the future is not uncertain because Jesus Christ has conquered, and Jesus Christ will restore all things according to the plan and the purpose of God's will. So the presence and the vision of the exalted Christ is the great unseen reality of our existence today. He is above all things in heaven and earth. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, the whole universe is saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And so we have in this book this incredible picture of Jesus Christ, this revelation of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you read this book, keep that in the forefront of your thinking. It's a revelation about and of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as we come to this book, one of the things that it will help us do is gain perspective. And it's not by accident that I chose the title that's there, Seeing the World from the Perspective of Heaven. I think sometimes we get so occupied and so busied and so overcome with what this world is going through and what this world is proposing and what this world is doing that we lose sight of the perspective of heaven. And one of the reasons that revelation has been given to us, this revelation of Jesus Christ by God, is to encourage us who live in this world to realize that material reality is not the only reality. In fact, it's not the overpowering reality. The most significant reality is the spiritual reality, the perspective of heaven. And before we get to the details of life on earth in chapter 6 and following, 
we get the big picture here in these first five chapters. The, the tone is set for us. The details about God and about Christ and about their names and about what they've accomplished, the realities of all they've done for us are presented for us in this particular book. And these are the things that we keep in mind. These verses, these first five chapters of the Bible give us a vision of reality that is to sustain us as we live and walk as followers of Christ on the earth. What is it that encourages you? What is it that grips you? What is it that holds you fast as you face all the stuff that you have to face in this world? Is it your own willpower? Is it your own get up and go? Is it your bank account? Is it your, your relationships? Or is it a vision of heaven and a throne and an occupied throne? See, we need to sear this image of heaven's perspective on earth into our consciences and into our minds. And we need to feed every experience that we face, every issue that we run into, every trial that we experience. We need to feed them through the grid of this reality that heaven wins, that heaven is in control. I agree with those who say that the foundational reality of this whole book of Revelation is that these verses remind us that things are not as they seem. Or even more accurately, things are not only as they seem. Do you know that, loved ones? Do you know that when you turn on the news and it seems like this world is exploding? Do you know that things are not only as they seem? Do you know that there is more going on that meets the sense of your unaided eyes? Do you understand that there is a throne and it's occupied and that God is sitting on that throne? Loved ones, you understand more and more the perspective of heaven as you view the realities of the earth in which we live. See, these chapters, these first five chapters in the rest of the book are meant to give us an alternate reading of reality. I don't mean that sort of as a spooky thing. I, I don't mean to say that as though we walk around as some kind of bizarro people that have our heads in the sand somewhere. I, this is the truth of Scripture, that if this world is all there is, I want to give up and walk away. But I know that this world is not all there is. And I know that there is a God who superintends and leads and guides and governs this world in which we live. And that's what happens when we go to chapter 4. You go to chapter 4 of this particular book of the Bible, and we've looked at it already. It's about the control room of heaven. It's about the control room of the universe. It's like the, 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 uh, the airports. If you're down on the ground of the airport, there's baggage guys and there's fuel guys and there's planes coming and going and there's people all over the place doing all kinds of things and it can look chaotic but what is it that runs and governs the comings and the goings of all that it's the control tower well think about the universe um, having a control tower and in that universe control tower is a heaven and on that th or a throne and on that throne sits one who guides and directs all the comings and goings of this earth heaven is the control tower of the universe. And chapter 4 prov provides us with this picture that we ought to sear into our minds again that there is a throne and it is occupied. John, as, it, as he writes this book and transports us, so to speak, to that control tower in heaven. He says, I saw a throne and it was occupied and that throne reminds us of God's kingly rule. It reminds us of God's sovereignty, of God's reign. And that is fundamental throughout the whole of the book. You read in various places in the book and find it in verse 4. Uh, um, uh, maybe not verse 4, sorry. In, yeah, it is in verse 4. 
about the seven spirits who are before the throne. You read it again in chapter 5, verse 1, about the throne that's in heaven. You read it about in verse 11, as they worship down before the throne. The throne is the center of this book. And so we get a picture both of the incredible focus on Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we ought to sear in our minds also this reality that things are not only as they seem, there is another perspective, and it is the perspective of heaven. I want to just go through and point out a few things to you rather than take time to unpack them all. Just in verses 4 to four to 8, these are stunning verses. Uh, I, I can't think of a better way to open up a book. And it, it worries me sometimes that we are so quick to blow past the first chapter of Revelation to get to what we might call the good stuff or the future stuff that we lose sight of the first chapters. Because these first uh, four verses or five verses give us a picture of God and of Christ that is meant to sustain us and prepare us as we get ready for the rest of the Revelation. Notice how he writes to the seven churches that have already made a couple comments. Grace and peace to you. Isn't that the great need of our world and our time? Grace and peace. These are biblical words. This is grace. This is the unmerited favor of God towards us, specifically related to the forgiveness of our sins and our need of salvation. Peace. The greatest need that any of us have is to be at peace with God. And that peace is secured through Jesus Christ. And notice there's this threefold um, uh, gift of grace that comes to us, the three different sources. It's a fascinating. First of all, it says, from him who is and was and is to come. That's God. From God. Grace and peace to you from God, the God who knows the beginning and the end and everything in between. And the second one is then, and from the seven spirits are before his throne. I'm convinced that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 is a help there, but 7 again is the number of perfection, of wholeness and completeness. And it is saying the fullness of the Spirit is before the throne of God. And he is the one that also gives us grace and peace in our lives. So we have grace and peace from God. We have grace and peace from the Spirit. And we have grace and peace from Jesus Christ. And notice what it says about him. He is the faithful witness. I love that. Jesus faithfully told us about God. Jesus faithfully obeyed God. Jesus faithfully endured the cross and all that all that, that meant. Jesus endured to the end. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the witness to his faithfulness. He is our example. He is our model, loved ones. We can do it because Christ has done it and he lives in us. So grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn from the dead. That's an extraordinary reminder that Jesus has conquered the grave. That he has been, that death could not hold him. And as Jesus was raised, we too will be raised in him. And the third one is there, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We got to grasp this, particularly again as we go through the book of Revelation. These, these people that lead our world and that lead our country, I am thankful for them because they have a huge responsibility and they have a lot on their shoulders and it's no wonder after the end of the terms most of them are gray. But do you know that they're not leading by themselves? Do you know that they can't do whatever they want? Do you know that no matter what it is, no matter how evil it appears, no matter how bad it appears, that Christ is ruling over them? Yeah. 
And we ought to be encouraged by that. It doesn't mean we throw up our hands in their air and do nothing. There's a lot of brutal stuff that is starting to come against the people of God, not only in the world, but in Canada. And we need to learn how to stand against it in our own little corners. But God is the ruler, or Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And it's like John can't stop himself. He breaks out into a doxology, a word of praise. And he says, and this is to Jesus, these are beautiful, beautiful words to him who loves us. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. Have you ever had one of those moments if you're married or maybe you're a child and your mom or your dad or your spouse says to you, I love you, and it just hits you. And the hair on the back of your head kind of rises. The hair on your arm kind of sticks up and there's a tingle that goes up your spine. And Wow, this is what it feels like to be loved. When we read a text like this and we read a word like that to him who loves you, he knows all about us. He knows everything that we've done. He knows everything that we said. He knows everything that we've thought. He knows the reason behind everything that we have ever done. And he loves us. John can't contain himself. He can't get through to the end of the book. He's just got to stop with this admiration to him who loves us. And then notice what it says next. To him, who has free, to him who has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's astounding. That's incredible. That's good news. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's, that's, the, that's the narrow, small view of the gospel. The big view of the gospel. He's going to restore all things through creation of a new heaven and earth. But zero it down for a moment and understand that if you are in Christ, you have been freed from your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ through his death. The curse of your sins has been dealt with. The penalty of your sins has been paid with. The power of sin has been broken in your life. Praise the Lord. And notice the third thing that he says. I, I don't know if we think about this. I don't think about this much. This last couple of weeks I've been thinking about it. And has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. God, is, Christ doesn't keep us as slaves. It's not like he gets us in there and he says, now, now, there, you, you guys just be good now. You know, we've done a lot for you already. He, like, he, he gives us the house. He gives us the kingdom. He says, you are, you are a kingdom. You are priests. You have eternal access to God, my Father. In and out of his presence, whenever you want ruling on this earth, when he creates it anew, praise him for his love. Praise him for the forgiveness of sins. Praise him for our exalted position as those who will be with him forever and ever. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then, as though he keeps going, it's like he can't stop. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so. Amen. That's one of the fundamental convictions of this book. This is what sustains us. This is what helps us endure. This is what helps us hang on. This is what helps us to be faithful to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because we know that Christ is coming again. It's just around the corner. It is near. These things must take place quickly. We're going to be saved and delivered and brought into a new heaven 
and a new earth. And he still can't stop. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. I hope to say more about that word, the Almighty. Pantokratos. I love that word, Pantokratos. The Lord of hosts, our warrior king, our mighty God. As we set these things in our mind, loved ones, these are the things that ought to overwhelm us. These are the things that ought to fill our mind. These are the grid through which we interpret the rest of the book as it comes to us. What a great way to come to the Lord's table, is it not? To be reflecting on these words of this doxology. Think about this. If you are going to participate in the Lord's table this morning, all who are in Christ, you can participate to him who loves us. You might want to just sit there and say, I can't believe it, Jesus. You love me? Wow. I've never been loved like this before. I've never had anybody do this for me. And then as you hold the cup in your hand, Jesus, you have freed me from my sins by your blood. Wow. I thought I was doomed. I thought I'd have a guilty conscience for the rest of my life. I thought I would be forever having to pay off the debt of my sin, never being able to do it, but you have freed me from my sins by your blood. Wow. And as you partake of the bread and the cup, think, Jesus, I can't believe it. You have exalted me. You have made me a priest. You have brought me with full rights of citizenship into the kingdom of God. That's too much for me. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the way that it sustains us, it prepares us, it encourages us, it helps us. I pray, Father, that we will heed the word of Jesus Christ as we continue to fill out this exalted picture of him as we continue to realize that the throne of the universe is occupied by God, that when Jesus Christ says, do not be afraid, we will stop being afraid because we have nothing to be afraid of. Father, as we come to this table now, what an incredible opportunity it is for us to focus, to zero in on the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins and exalted us to such a high position. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your incredible plan that was worked out through the perfections of Jesus Christ so that we might forever be with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.